Amen. We do serve a great God. Thank you so much to the team for leading us so meaningfully and sincerely and reverently in worship. God has blessed us with amazing worship in the church. Thank you so much to Gary and the team. So having had look, having had looked at the office of elder last week, we're looking at the office of the deacon this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verse 3 to 13. Uh, according to historic Baptist beliefs, which is biblical in our opinion at least, there are two offices in the church, that of the elder and the deacon. And so we're considering the second this morning. Uh, Paul says this, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise, or the woman likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I also find the reading of God's word. May you reform our lives to its truth. Uh, will you pray with me as we consider this text together? As we consider this text, Lord, we pray that you would help us to not just see the office of the deacon, but to see the God who institutes this office. Help us to see something of the beauty and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and may our perception of Him change the way we view ourselves in the local church and how we view our faithful brothers and sisters in the diaconate. Help us in this, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. If the church is a pillar and the buttress of the truth, if the church is meant to display the beauty and the glory of the gospel, that's how we believe we contend for the gospel. If the church is meant to display and uphold the beauty and the glory of the gospel, the question becomes, how does the church fulfill this function? That is to say, how do we actually uphold and display the beauty of the gospel in the life of the church? Uh, various answers could be given, I'm sure. Uh, the church displays the beauty and the glory of the gospel through its teaching, right? As we proclaim the gospel from the pulpit or in the small group or in one-on-one -on -one discussions as we enter into our community, we display and uphold the wonders of the gospel. The church also displays the beauties and the glory of the gospel in the ordinances, right? When we see someone uh, being baptized as they go under the water and are raised up, we are given a picture of Christ's death and resurrection for us. And even as we celebrate the Lord's table, we see His body given for us represented in those elements. See, we uphold and display the glory of the gospel even in the ordinances. 
Or perhaps you could say that we display and uphold the beauty of the gospel in the church membership. As we care for one another, as we encourage one another, uphold one another, as we forgive one another, as we love one another, we display the fruit of the gospel in our lives. And in so doing, uphold the glories of the gospel for all to see. Well, from the title this morning, from the topic, you know there's another answer. May I suggest to you that the church also displays the beauty and the glory of the gospel in and through the ministry of the diaconate in the church. Perhaps I could say it this way. No other group in the church should display the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ more tangibly, more meaningfully, more practically than the deacons of the church. How so? Because no other group is officially called to serve like the deacons. And in being called to serve and being given the name servants, deacons, they reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to understand that, let me ask you, what title did God give the Messiah in Isaiah 41, 42 verse 1? Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. Tell me, how did Jesus describe his messianic mission in Matthew 20, 28? The Son of Man, he says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, what model did Jesus leave his disciples in John 13, verse 15, right after he served his disciples and washed their feet? He says, for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done, i.e., serve. Dear friends, Jesus, our Messiah, was a servant. He was a servant par excellence. Now, now you might ask, what does this have to do with deacons? Well, everything. The word deacon is transliterated from the Greek for diakonos, and diakonos simply refers to a person who serves. And who is Jesus but the Messiah who serves? In Luke 22, verse 27, Jesus tells his disciples, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I'm among you as one who serves, as one who deacons. Uh, Matt Smithhurst rightly points out in his book on deacons that Jesus could rightly be called the king of kings and the deacon of deacons. See, he is the servant par excellence, and he calls all his people in the church to be servants. But realize certain men and women so excel in serving that they are recognized and set apart by the church as official servants, as official deacons in the life of the church. And so it's those deacons who excel in serving that I would argue display the beauties and the glories of the gospel in their self-sacrificial service as they serve their servant king, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to the office of the diaconate is a vitally important office. It's not an office to, to dismay or disdain. See, if elders are the mouth of Jesus as they teach the gospel and preach it, then surely deacons are the hands and feet of Jesus as they serve and follow Jesus in so doing. And so this morning as we consider this text, as we consider this office and God's plan and pattern for the deacons in the church, we would do well to recognize that this is an important office. An important office that sets an example for all of us to be servants. Now, as we look at this text, I want to follow a similar outline to last week. Last week, we saw the calling and character and the concern of elders. This morning, I want us to consider the calling, character, and the crown of deacons. Firstly, the calling of deacons. The calling or the call of deacons. In Acts 6, we see that the apostles call the church together, and they choose and set apart men for service. And now we've already read the passage, I'm not going to read it again, but I want you to see and note a few things about this particular office from Acts 6. Firstly, deacons are called by the church. They are called and set apart by the church, and the church recognizes them as deacons. In verse 3, the apostles say, Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty or to this necessary task. Now this implies, doesn't it, that not only was the church involved in in choosing and calling these deacons, but more importantly, the church had to recognize these men who had already to some degree evidenced and excelled in serving. Men who had already shown themselves to be respectable and full of the Spirit, Men who were wise and equipped and capable by the Spirit, made capable by the Spirit to serve. And the point to get is this. We need to see that being a deacon is a calling. It isn't a meaningless position just just for the sake of filling a position. It's a vital position in the church for the health of the church. They are equipped by the Spirit and they are set apart by the church of God. You see the importance of this calling in Acts 6, verse 6, where the apostles pray and lay their hands on the deacons, a symbolic action that they are blessed and set apart and commissioned for this great calling. So deacons are called by the church. Secondly, deacons are called to care for practical needs. In Acts 6, we see the church is growing, and one of the results of a growing church is growing pains, and we see that certain Greek uh, widows were were being neglected. And so the deacons were set apart to practically meet that need. In verse 2, the apostles say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That Greek word for serving tables is related to the word deacon. And reveals for us the practical nature of this office. See, deacons are called to attend to and serve the practical ends in the church, the practical needs that arise within the church, whether those are benevolent needs or administrative needs or financial needs. Yet we mustn't think that their service is merely practical. No, their practical service serves spiritual ends. 
Notice the problem in, in Acts 6 threatened to divide the church and, and bring the gospel into disrepute. Yet because of the deacons in that context, the church remained united and flourished as a result of their ministry. And so realize the health of the church depends on deacons, deacons who practically meet the needs within the church. That's why Mark Dever famously has called deacons the shock absorbers of the church. They take on the practical problems and needs of the church so that the church can run smoothly on its mission for the gospel. But thirdly, note that deacons are called to support the ministry of the word. In Acts 6, deacons allow the apostles to focus on their particular calling. And so too, likewise today, deacons free elders to be faithful to their calling of teaching and leading and shepherding the flock of God. In verse 4 in Acts 6, it says, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And again, we see that the deacons, their practical work serves a spiritual end. Uh, let's listen again to uh, Matt Smithhurst on this. He says this, The work of deacons, though often focused on physical and administrative needs, has enormous spiritual implications. There is an inseparable link between the labor of deacons and the flourishing of the word. Public ministry is impossible without private service. Had the seven not freed the apostles to focus on teaching and prayer, the gospel would not have spread. We need to see then that deacons play a vital role within the life of the church. They are essential to our health. They, therefore, that is a high calling that they have. A high calling when they are equipped by the Spirit of God. A high calling wherein they serve the church of God. And a high calling wherein they support the preaching of the Word of God. Like last week, I have a twofold application for us. For the deacons that are here among us, brother, sister, may I remind you of your calling. It's no small thing to be set apart by the church of God. It's no small thing to be commissioned to your office. No, your position matters to this church. Your work matters to the health of our church here in Honeyridge. Remember then your calling. Remember by using your spirit-given gifts and talents for the church. Remember your calling by giving yourself again and again practically to the needs of the church. Remember your calling by seeing the spiritual ends of your calling. Dear deacon, brother or sister, you have been gifted and equipped by God's spirit for this work and therefore recognize how important you are. How vital your ministry is, so therefore take serious your work. It, it might go unnoticed and unthanked and not even, uh, even closely, remotely aware of most people in the church, but it is a high calling God has given, and therefore take it seriously. But, but for the church member here, my encouragement to you is this, rejoice in your deacons. It is not a small thing, it should not be a small thing in your eyes that God has set apart men and women to care for you practically. When I came into 
church this morning, it was still dark, and I opened up with the alarm of went to my office, and that's all I did. But when I came out of my office, this place was buzzing. Why? Because deacons, I'm sure, were involved. So you came in this morning, and you've been practically served by deacons. There is a deacon who oversees the property so that when you drive onto this campus, it's beautiful outside. The, the grass is cut. There's, it's a beautiful place to be. When you came in this morning and you can hear me and you can hear the, or see the projection, that's because a deacon oversees that and puts the teams into place. And even the fact that, that you walked in there and someone welcomed you, that's because a deacon oversees those rosters. And that's just the ministries on a Sunday. That's not to mention the benevolence and the care that happens week in, week out by the hands of deacons and those who serve alongside those deacons. See, the point is this, dear church, God has blessed us with men and women who practically serve us in ways that are often unseen by us. And, and therefore be thankful for your deacons. And guess what? Maybe thank them sometime. When you see a deacon, thank him or her for her service. And, and be mindful of your deacons that serve you and pray for them and encourage them in their service. This is a high calling, and we should esteem them. So that's the first thing I want you to see this morning, the, the calling of the deacon. S secondly, consider, this will be the longer point, the character of deacons. The character of deacons from verse 8 in 1 Timothy 3. Paul lists various qualifications for deacons. And in one sense, these qualifications are an expansion of what we find in Acts 6. What does it look like for a deacon to be of good repute, full of the Spirit, and wise? Well, these qualifications tease that out for us. Now, before we look at these qualifications, note again that very little is said of what deacons do. Rather, far more important for Paul is who they are. Competency matters, believe it, but not more than character. And so Paul lists seven qualifications. He starts with a general qualification. He follows that up with three negative ones and then ends with three positive. And like last week, I want us to see the principle behind these qualifications. Firstly, I want you to see that the deacon is dignified. The, the deacon is dignified. That word for dignified speaks to the fact that a deacon must be of worthy and respectable and noble character. There's a gravitas to them. It refers to a man or woman whose behavior inspires respect, not reproach. See, like an elder, a dignified deacon is above reproach because there's no scandalous sin, no character trait that, that leads you to disdain them. No, they stand out as someone dignified, respectable, worthy. Paul then moves on to the negative qualifications. And all of these negative qualifications has to do with self-control. So secondly, the deacon is honest. The ESV says a deacon is not double-tongued. The Greek word there means diologos. It means to, to say something twice. And the idea is this. A double-tongued person is one who says one thing to one group, yet something else to another. He says one thing, but actually means another and does another. Essentially, a double-tongued person is a hypocrite. He is an insincere, duplicitous person who cannot be trusted. 
But, but that's not who a deacon is. No, in contrast, a deacon is honest. He is sincere. He's careful with his words. A deacon says what he means and means what he says, and very importantly, does what he says. And surely this qualification makes sense in the life of the church. How can someone be called to this office who cannot be trusted, who isn't honest? See, such a person cannot meaningfully serve the church. And so a deacon is, is honest. Thirdly, a deacon is disciplined. We saw this last week as well with elders. Uh, like elders, a deacon must not be a drunkard. That is, he must not be addicted to much wine. Instead of being carried away by, by alcohol or addiction or appetite, the deacon is disciplined. He, he buffets his body, his soul, his desires, his wants. Instead of being full of wine or any full addiction or full of addictions, he's full of the Spirit. He's disciplined. He walks in the Spirit. He displays the fruit of the Spirit. And so he's disciplined. Fourthly, a deacon is content. You see that again, like elders. A deacon is not greedy for gain. Instead, he or she is content with whatever they have in whatever situation they're in. In chapter 6, Paul gives this sober warning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, this is particularly important in the life of the church. Deacons shouldn't be swayed by this greedy craving for more. Why? Well, for one thing... Deacons are involved in administration, financial administration of the church. And so it would not be wise to put a lover of money over the care of money. But more importantly, those with this craving will not only wander themselves away, but if they're in the position of an office, they will lead others away in the faith. And so it's vitally important then for deacon to be content to be one who is disciplined even in his use of money. Now from verse 9, Paul lists three positive qualifications. And so firstly, a deacon is, if I can call it this, theological. A deacon is theological. Verse 9, Paul says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Uh, the mystery of the faith there, to remove the mystery, simply means the gospel. It's the gospel and the doctrines of the faith. And by saying the deacon must hold on to these, Paul is saying he or she must have a good grasp of theology. They must know the doctrines that are essential to the gospel and their faith. In other words, a deacon must be theological in the best sense of the word. A deacon must have a knowledge of God and the things of God. Although the deacon isn't in a teaching capacity or a teaching office, although the deacon is concerned with practical matters, it doesn't mean that he or she should not understand theological matters. In fact, their theology should shape and motivate their service. That's what Paul means when he says that they must hold the faith with a sincere or a clear conscience. See, sound thinking must be accompanied by sound living. And if it doesn't, then, then consciences will be seared and service will be tainted. The commentator Mounts, William Mounts, puts it this way. It's not sufficient to have a grasp 
on the theological profession of the church, that knowledge must be accompanied with appropriate behavior. In this case, a conscience that is clear from any stain of sin, once again Paul connects right belief with right behavior. So a deacon must be theological. Their knowledge of God and the things of God should lead them to serve. It should shape their service. It should motivate their service. They should be theological. They should understand the mysteries of the faith. Sixthly, a deacon is blameless. The deacon is blameless. Paul's point in verse 10 is simply this. After a deacon is tested and examined, after showing himself or herself blameless, then and then only a deacon should be appointed. Now, I don't think Paul is saying a deacon must write a 10-page exam or fill out a questionnaire or go through some kind of confirmation class. No, what Paul is getting at is simply this. A deacon is one who has already proven himself, who's proven his or her capabilities for this office, who has been weighed and not been found wanting. As we saw in Acts 6, the church is meant to recognize those men and women who have proven themselves to be reputable, to be full of the Spirit, to be wise. And so the character qualification is simply this. A deacon is one who has proven himself or herself blameless. That they're free from any accusation. And then finally, seventhly, a deacon, look at verse 12, is faithful. Again, as with elders, a deacon reveals whether or not he is fit for the office in the way he leads his home. Again, to quote Mounts, he says, the home is the microcosm of the church, and the qualities necessary for service in the church will be evident in the home. See, a deacon will reveal himself ready for this office by the way he manages and leads and cares for his family. Again, as with elders, when Paul says, let the deacon each be the husband of one wife, he literally means he must be a one-woman man, which describes faithfulness, loyalty, devotedness. And not just to his wife, but to his children. He must be faithful in raising them. Now, we know that we cannot save our children, right? You, you know that, right? Salvation is of the Lord. He needs to open the eyes of their hearts. He needs to save them. But we must, be proved, we must be faithful in that. We must be faithful to expose them to the means of grace, to the gospel, to the word, to church. And so deacon is one who excels in that. He's faithful, not just in the church, but in the home. And so he's faithful. So you see some of these qualifications, uh, and these are things we need to look for and expect in our deacons. A, a deacon must be dignified, honest, Discipline, content, he must be theological, blameless, and faithful. Now, now you would have noticed I've missed out on one verse, and you would have noticed I've been referring to male and female deacons, and that's because of that one verse, verse 11. And this introduces us to the uh, difficult debate of female deacons. Uh, in, in verse 11, Paul introduces a new group in the discussion on deacons, and there are different ways to interpret the way Paul, what Paul says of this group. 
One way to interpret verse 11 is to say that it's referring to the wives of the deacons. That's the way the ESV translates it. Their wives likewise must be dignified. Now, the ESV isn't alone there. The NET, the CSB, the NKJV, all of those are good translations with good sound theologians and scholars behind them. Nevertheless, we need to recognize that these are, there are other interpretive options available. For example, the NIV says in verse 11, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. That seems closer to the Greek. The word for woman or wife in verse 11 is gynekas and can be translated either as woman or wife. And so there are at least two options or three options, but the two I want to consider is this. Is it referring to female deacons or the wives of deacons? Uh, we, we need some uh, interpretive humility here. Uh, why? Because both options are viable, both options are up for critique, both options are held by like-minded pastors and churches. You wouldn't have to look very far to see pastors disagree on this, but agree on everything else. And, and so with that said, I must say though, that according to our practice and our constitution, Henry Ridge has opted for the latter interpretation. That is, we believe there is a case to be made for female deacons. And let me give you four reasons uh, and there are more, but I'll leave it at this. Firstly, the repetition of the word likewise in verse 8 and 11. In, in verse 8, Paul says, deacons likewise must be dignified. And then almost the exact same phrase is repeated in verse 11. Women likewise must be dignified. A and this implies a different group, a, a different subset of deacons, namely female deacons that serve alongside their male counterparts. Secondly, the absence of there in the Greek. If Paul had the wives of the deacons in mind, he would have qualified it by saying their women or their wives. But the possessive pronoun is missing in the Greek. Thirdly, the non-existence of the word deaconess. Uh, when Paul wrote this letter, realize that the word for deaconess wasn't in existence yet. Existence yet. That only came much, much later. And so given the absence of this word, it would make sense that Paul would use this word for women uh, for female deacons. And then fourthly and finally, the example of Phoebe in Romans 6 verse 11, probably the slam dunk many would say. Uh, Romans 6 1, we see the classic example of Phoebe who is described as a servant of the church in Cancrea. Uh, and not just a servant, but a patron who helps the church. And so even the ESV footnote recognizes that it's possible to interpret that verse as referring to as a deaconess. And so all in all, there's much more we could say, but all in all, we would do well to recognize that a biblical case can be made and should be made for female deacons. And what qualifications should characterize them? Or more or less the same as the male counterparts. Look at verse 11. They must be dignified, not slanderous, not double-tongued, but sober-minded, self-disciplined in their mind, faithful in all things. And so a case should be made and can be made for female deacons as, as God uses both men and women in the church to serve him and his purposes for the glory of the gospel. Now, I know the second point has been long, so bear with me. Here's my twofold application again. For the deacons here, 
I want you to examine or re-examine yourself in light of these qualifications. Tell me, how are you doing in your service at the moment? Is there dignity and discipline in the way you're serving? Is there faithfulness that characterizes your life as you serve? Is there a blessed consistency between what you believe and how you behave? Go through this list and, and ask yourself, uh, are you faithful? Are you dignified? Are you honest? Are you disciplined, content? Have you been theological in your understanding of God and the gospel and the word? Are you blameless before others? Or are you faithful even when no one sees? Remember, these qualifications are given for your help to show us what God desires of us and to help us to, to yield ourselves to Him, to serve in a way that honors Him and pleases Him. And, and a true servant of God would want to please his God. And, and so examine yourself in light of these qualifications. How are you doing this morning? Perhaps this morning you need to recommit yourself to be faithful and blameless in all the ways you serve the church. Particularly for the church member here, you need to recognize your gifts and you need to serve. You thought you are going to get scot-free this morning. As we saw last week with elders, these qualifications are actually quite ordinary. They're actually quite mundane. They're not for super sane Christians. No, every Christian should be dignified. And blameless and faithful. Every Christian should be honest and disciplined and content. To one degree or another, every Christian should have these qualities. But here's the thing. Not every Christian is serving and evidencing these qualities. Not every Christian is, is displaying the fruit of these qualifications. Dear Christian, have you been saved and sanctified? Yes, Dear Christian, have you not been saved and set apart to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a servant par excellence? And therefore, are you not called to serve? To display these characteristics and work them out as you practically give yourself to the church and to God. Dear Christian, these characteristics should be true of us, and perhaps they aren't true of us. Because we haven't exercised them. We haven't exerted ourselves in serving. And so again, measure yourself against these qualifications. How are you doing, dear Christian? Are you one who is serving in a way that is dignified and honest and disciplined, etc.? I consider two exhortations first from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.16 Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Do you believe that's who you are, a servant of God? Or, chapter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, and realize each of us have, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Dear church, you recognize your gifts and serve. In fact, in serving, you sharpen these gifts. And so give yourself to serve as Christ served. Let me conclude in the third place. Let's look at the crown of deacons. Or say differently, the crowning blessings or the crowning rewards of faithful deacons. 
In verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3, Paul starts with an incentive for elders that to elder is a noble task. And he ends these qualifications with another incentive. Namely, that there are rewards for faithful service. And pastorally, <coughs> sorry, pastorally, this is wise and good, isn't it? Uh, the work that, that deacons do often goes unnoticed, unappreciated, and unthanked. And Paul is telling deacons here that even though it seems that all your service goes unnoticed and goes unappreciated, goes unthanked, know this, there are rewards for your service. There are crowning blessings that God dispatches to those who are faithful. And what are these crowning blessings? Well, Paul says, for those who serve well, they will see, firstly, good standing. Good standing, the word there for standing is from the word step. Think of a pedestal. A deacon, therefore, is the idea is a deacon is someone when he serves well, he is elevated, he is esteemed, he is respected and honored. Where is he honored? Where is he elevated? Well, on the one hand, in the church. Realize we should honor those who serve well. The Bible speaks of honoring those with, with, to whom honor is owed. See, there's nothing wrong in, in honoring and recognizing brothers and sisters who have served well and to encourage them even as you honor them. Uh, consider 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them highly in love because of their work. See, deacons should receive respect. They should be elevated and honored by the church. But may I suggest to you that deacons who serve well will not only receive a good standing in the church, but even before God. Now I know and we know that we are not made right with God because of anything in us. We are not made right and have a right relationship with God because of any good works done by us. No, we are reconciled and forgiven and made acceptable before God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Yet even in recognizing that, I do think we need to see that God does honor and esteem those who serve humbly. Two passages, James 14, he offers this encouraging exhortation. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Or consider Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving his saints. See, deacons who serve well as before the Lord, I trust, will hear those blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. And for the deacon here, make that your goal, to hear those words, serve, so that you would find that honor before your Lord, that he would tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. But, but tied to this reward, Offered to deacons, there is another. Uh, those deacons who serve well will not only receive a good standing, but they will receive great confidence. Uh, Paul says that great they will receive great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, what does that mean? Well, there are a few options, but here's my take on it. 
That word for confidence is often used for boldness in speech. But here it's referring and used in confidence in the faith. And so it implies that if a deacon serves well, the result will be greater confidence and assurance of faith. Listen to one commentator on this. The point of the promise is that faithful service brings greater sense, a greater sense of confidence in God and assurance of salvation. Now, don't underestimate how important that is. One of our struggles in the Christian faith is our weak faith, right? I think we've preached on this a number of times already. Don't we often struggle with faith that is weak and waving? Well, Paul is saying one remedy to weak faith is to actually stop focusing on yourself and to actually serve others. To not just take, but to give of yourself. See, deacons, and not just deacons, but all Christians who serve others well within the church will grow in their faith. How so? How does that work? Because as they serve, they emulate their servant Savior. As they serve, they emulate the object of their faith. They serve as Christ serves, and when they serve as Christ serves, their faith in Christ grows and deepens and becomes more confident and assured. Dear friends, perhaps, perhaps it's the case that our faith in Christ is faltering because our service for Christ is failing. Because we're consumers who take and take and take and never give as Christ gives. That's the thinking of the world. To just take. Uh, Plato, the famous philosopher, said this, How can a man be happy who is a servant of anything? The Christian should answer and say, I'm happy because I'm serving like my Savior. I'm happy because in serving like Jesus, guess what? I meet Jesus because in my weakness, He supplies me with His grace that is sufficient for me in my service. Uh, Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Uh, you see something similar in 1 Timothy 1.12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ is our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Paul seems to be saying this, in being a faithful servant, he has actually met with Christ and been supplied with the grace and the strength of Christ. The overall point is this, dear beloved, dear church, faithful service for Christ produces greater confidence in Christ. Greater faithful service will deepen your faith. And and here's the other fold of the application for you, Christian, will you dare to deacon? Will you dare to to serve others? Will you dare to follow your Savior in actually giving of yourself to those around you? Or, Or will you consume and take? To help you, to help motivate you to do that, and remember and think on how Jesus has served you. 
Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a deacon, if you will, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being a, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why death? To save dead sinners like you and me. To renew us and to save us, to draw us to our God, to give us a new heart and new life so that we can serve him with joy and gladness, that we can know and rejoice in our God. Therefore, dear church, having been recipients of God's grace and Christ's service, should we not emulate him? Should we not be servants who give of ourselves, whether you're an official deacon or whether you aspire to be a deacon or whether or not you just want to serve? Should we not display the beauty and the glory of the gospel by emulating our servant king? Dear friends, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, may we be a pillar and buttress of the truth. May we display and uphold the beauty of the gospel by being a people who serve well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what should be our response when we are reminded of how Christ has served us? That he took the form of a servant, that he came to die as a servant to purchase our ransom. That he who was eternally with you in glory took on our humanity, suffered in our world, bore our sin, died naked and ashamed on that tree to, to glorify you in the salvation of sinners and the saving of us by being a servant. Lord, what should be our response but by thanks and praise, but also service. And so we pray in one sense, may all of us be deacons here this morning. May we all give of ourselves knowing that we have received abundant, rich, overflowing blessings in Christ. Help us in this way. Forgive us where we have been self-centered. Forgive us where we have been self-seeking. Forgive us where we have been takers and consumers. And help us by your Spirit to be full of the Spirit and to serve like Christ. We pray that this will be true of us so that this community and this world would see the gospel upheld and displayed in all its glory and beauty. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.